Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, my name is Bex and welcome to Getting Emotional. Every week I've been discovering a brand new emotion, or rather telling you about an emotion you may well have felt but have probably never heard of. So we come to the end of series two and it has been a lot of fun. I've had some incredible guests, more on them later, and in the last week I was also uh, nominated for an award for Moment of Raw Emotion, rather fitting, in the International Women's Podcast Awards. So uh, first of all, nice to be told I'm an international woman, makes me feel very fancy. But secondly, just amazing to be nominated. And as you probably know, this show has only been around for a few months and I do everything from writing to production and everything in between on my own. So honestly, this filled me with joy. Anyway, moving on from Pat's on the back, I wanted to say thank you so much to you for listening. It has been an amazing series and I'm always thrilled when people do tune in. Of course, you can find me on Twitter if you want to get in touch and say hi. Just go to at getemotionalpod. And I should say thank you to my incredible guests. We kicked off the series in style with Nish Kumar talking about Brabant, the art of pushing someone's buttons. Here's us discussing his favourite types of comedy that do just that, with me geeking out a little bit at the end. Because I actively just want people to like me all the time. The idea of creating a situation where people don't like me for even a short while, i that genuinely puts the fear of God into me. Yeah, I mean... Again, I think all of those things, because obviously, I mean, this is not true of all comedians, but this is absolutely true of me. I (laughs) do have a pathological need for everyone to like me. Um, But I also have a need for that to happen exclusively on my terms. (laughs) Sure, yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, so, and also, you know, you watch a lot of, you as a comedy fan, a lot of the comedy I enjoy is when it's sort of testing your like slightly testing your patience. I mean, I obviously Stuart Lee has made a career from going to say Stuart Lee. Yeah. Made a career from testing people's patience and playing with people's expectations. And I mean, even if you take it back to the most significant example I can think of, of pushing an audience's buttons and testing their patience is the Cape Fear episode of the Simpsons when Sideshow Bob keeps standing on rakes. And that that it's purist because again, there's no political subtext to it. There's no philosophical needling. It's button pushing purely for button pushing sake, mm-hmm. and it's button pushing purely by testing an audience's patience. There isn't like there's no philosophical element to it. It's literally it's the most purist distilled example of how something is funny. Then it can be annoying then you become outraged because you cannot believe the gall of these people. And then it goes around to being funny again. It's such a precise art. And also, by the way, just great Simpsons reference. Just big fan of anybody referencing the Simpsons. It's like, there's a lot of, I mean, like, it's, it's because the age we are, um, based, but like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the Simpsons between series one to nine, particularly, that is sort of pure distilled comedy. And so, especially when you talk about comedy, it's very hard to get away from some stuff that's happened in The Simpsons. Oh, so much. I, this is a side note, but I was looking at um, a list of writers who've worked on The Simpsons, like Conan O'Brien, and insane. I was like, oh my God, it's insane. insane. Like, the talent, it's incredible. It's absolutely insane. Conan O'Brien, Greg Daniels, who then went on to do The Office. Yeah. It's like the writing pool was absolutely bananas. I, yeah, I was looking at that recently, and I was like, that is quite the room to be in. 
Brabant, as you may remember, was invented by Douglas Adams for his book The Meaning of Lif. I've subsequently bought the book myself. It is a small, slim volume, and I found loads more incredible words and feelings, including my favourite, Glasgow, which is the feeling of sadness you get when you're walking through a place full of people 15 years younger than yourself. If you're a few years out of school, uni, or a certain job that meant a lot to you, and you've visited it recently, you'll probably know what I mean. Now, as I've gone on this emotional journey and I've been researching feelings for the podcast, every now and again I discover words that really resonate with me. Some I will save for a future pod, and the others are amazing, but very tricky to do a full show about. For example, there's pronoia. That is the opposite to paranoia, which is when you believe that everybody is out to help, not harm you. I actually know a few people I think have this, um, and it's not the most complimentary thing to say about someone, so I'm not going to name names. Although, to be honest, the people who I think it about probably don't think it about themselves because, well, they've got pronoia, so... hmm. There's also a feeling I have felt more than once recently. Opia. That's the feeling of intensity, the awkwardness of eye contact. As the world is opening up post-lockdown, it's likely that we're seeing more people face-to-face, and eye contact is a must. Now, I don't know about you, but it's one of those things that if I think about it too much, it makes me go a bit weird. Like, I'll be having a perfectly nice conversation with someone chatting away, and then I think, oh my god, am I making enough eye contact? and I just get odd about it. I stare at the person for a bit too long, then I look at the floor, and then I think, oh my goodness, I'm looking at the floor too much, and then look in their eyes again, and it just gets a lot. And I wonder if I've come across as a bit, you know, not okay. But of course, intense eye contact is not only about looking into someone else's eyes. It's also about letting them look into yours. If eyes are the windows to the soul, by letting someone stare into yours, you're being quite vulnerable. And don't even get me started on those hidden glances with someone you fancy or somebody that you're sharing an inside joke with. That awareness of eye intensity, eye tensity? That's opia. Interestingly, it was invented by John Koenig, who has created loads of brand new words for his online project, The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, and also invented the word I used in my very first podcast, Vemadarlin. Go and check it out right now, series one, episode one. I interview incredible photographer Rankin. Right, enough of the plugging. Another guest who a lot of people enjoyed this series, and an emotion that I know a lot of people could relate to, was Tosca with Dr. Soph. So I thought I'd go back to that episode with a sneaky extra clip I didn't get to include at the time about the emotion. And a lot of us fear our emotions, right? So if you think about modern times, um, we are taught that happiness is the emotion we're meant to strive for. for. Whereas in something something ridiculous, I wrote about this recently, in something like the 16th or 17th century, they thought sadness was good for us. Probably actually Tosca, right? This idea (laughs) of melancholy. So there was even this self-help book that listed all the reasons for you to be sad because they thought it was important for you to get motivated and live a good life. So if you think about the fact that now we're told that happiness is the emotion that we're meant to feel, for a lot of us, when we feel something that isn't happiness, we panic, right? We get frustrated, we get cross with ourselves. So for example, if you're feeling melancholy, a lot of people then think, oh no, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? They beat themselves up, which leads to worse emotions or a feeling that is more extreme. And so with melancholy, because I do believe melancholy is different to depression, for example, or Mm -hmm. like deep, deep sadness. With... um, melancholy actually one of the things that's really useful to do at that time is to firstly take the pressure off yes allow yourself to feel the way that you do notice any feelings of self-criticism um and then get curious 
right? Mm-hmm. For example, maybe it's the time actually to be more meditative. Maybe it's the time to journal. Maybe it's the time to write down. You know, one of the things I think um, that's really fascinating to do when you're unsure why you feel something is to just kind of, I was going to say verbal diarrhea, that's not very nice, but <laughs> and then I'm going to say vomit. Okay, just vomit all your thoughts down onto the page, as in just let it flow for three days in a row, four days in a row, just right at the top of the page. I'm not sure why I'm feeling like this, but all these things are happening. Write for 15 minutes. At the end, reread what you've written and simply write three things that you've learned, one thing you're looking forward to that day, and then you can tear it up or move on and do the next thing the next day, do the same thing the next day. After three days, four days, not only do we know that the science causes your brain to change after, you know, sorry, journaling causes your brain to change very quickly, after three days, four days, you're going to start noticing patterns like, oh, I feel kind of nothing in the mornings because of X or, oh, I feel kind of nostalgic for a certain time because of Y. So I think we can see melancholy as a time for introspection, mm-hmm. but also there needs to be boundaries, right? Melancholy, when it's allowed to just be everywhere, can send us into a feeling of demotivation and sadness and into a slump. Ah, Dr. Soph, a true believer, as I am, in feeling all your feelings, but not letting your feelings feel you. Okay, that was more inspirational when I'd just written it down. Saying it out loud feels a bit weird. Hmm. I also spoke recently to political activist Femi Oluwole about political apathy, qualanquismo. This clip is something I didn't get to include. It's his comment on why so many people may have been compelled to vote the way they did in the Brexit referendum. Yeah, I mean, people in the South in general, in London especially, uh, and Remain voting areas, they had no idea that Brexit was going to win in 2016. It was an utter shock. And for me, it really wasn't. I mean, I was in Birmingham at the time, um, and I was out uh, in Bullring uh, in a T-shirt I brought, I brought from Primark, which I wrote and felt at pen, EU questions, just ask. <laughs> uh, and, I was stood, and I was stood there and basically waiting for people to come up and talk to me. And so I knew that it was 50-50 because I had people coming up to me and asking crazy questions. Mm. Um, um, I, 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 it was, I mean, I remember speaking to two people in Bromsgrove who said, I'm voting out to stick it to David Cameron. Um, yeah. Because oh, after years of austerity, yeah, I get it. Um, and uh, there were people that all the lies from the Leave campaign about uncontrolled immigration. And when I speak to people from uh, who don't understand people voted Leave, the story that I often tell is, imagine if you are 50 years old, you're living in Sunderland, Redcar, somewhere, somewhere that you've seen nothing come to your area for your entire life. You watched Margaret Thatcher close the shipyards and your dad lost his job and you've seen london get more investment every single year um millennium dome london eye under i mean when's the last time you saw an underground tube system in hull <laughs> yes um and you've seen all this infrastructure all this spend go there and your area get nothing uh and you know that your vote doesn't really matter because well you're always you've always voted labor your dad's always voted labor your granddad always voted labor and so you know that even though you vote Labour every single time, it doesn't change anything because, well, Labour has no real incentive to do anything politically for you because your vote belongs to them. 
and the Tories have no incentive to do anything for you because, well, you're never going to vote for them anyway. So politics in general has utterly forgotten about you, and your vote means nothing. And so the one time that your vote actually does mean something in, the, in that referendum and can make a difference, the person telling you to vote for status quo is David Cameron, the mm. same person from the party that's just put you and everyone you know through eight years of austerity and, and suffering, and the person from the same party that cost your dad his job when Margaret Thatcher was in, was in, in control. Of course you're going to vote Brexit. Because the stuff wasn't explained, as I said before, um, there was a back and forth about different uh, warnings from uh, from or Project Fear or the um, uh, the promises from the Leave campaign. It you nobody knew for sure whether or not this would be a good thing or a bad thing, but we did know it would mean significant change. So if you've seen your vote mean nothing and you've become apathetic about politics and apathetic about the very notion of making your life better until this one potential real roll of the dice i if i hadn't studied eu law i i could very easily have done that myself even studying eu law i saw that 350 million pounds promised to the nhs on on the bus and i was like wait hang on am i even on the right side here Mm -hmm. it took it took knowing that um having that benefit of the eu improves the economy and the economies of scale in terms of the contribution that we give and, and how much that makes things cheaper because we're all contributing to it as 28 different countries. It took knowing that to really know which, which way things would go if we did vote out. But if you don't know that and you are just desperate for change, there was only one way to vote in that, in that referendum. A uh, big thank you to Femi and to all my guests for joining me on the pod this season, Angela Barnes, Laura Kate Dale and Paul Anthony Jones, a.k.a. Haggard Hawks. And that's it for season two. What a joy it has been. I've got so many more feelings to go and lots of guests for the next series too. We'll be covering feeling the ick, trepanwitz, and let me try and get this right, cowco keep you. Hmm, I'll do some practicing. So I'll see you soon, right? This has been Getting Emotional and that was a series. Thanks so much to all of my guests and thank you to you for listening. Come say hello on Twitter at GetEmotionalPod. In the meantime, don't forget to like, subscribe and follow this podcast wherever it is you're listening. Bye!